The first cell phone was demonstrated in 1973 by Martin Cooper. You know what wasn't demonstrated? Shared plans. Over 50 years later, you can save on one line thanks to Visible. When you switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible, you can get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just 25 bucks a month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees. No, really. You can look around for them. They're not there. Switch now at Visible.com. Save on wireless without the hassle. Switch to Visible today and save at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Beyond, and hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Dornbush, the host of IGN's weekly PlayStation show podcast, Beyond, and I'm joined this week by my usual co-host, Brian Altano. Hello, hey, hey, Brian. Beyond. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see you. I'm happy for you to be here. But more importantly, we have a very special guest with us this week that we're both very excited to talk with, uh, Jason Connell from Sucker Punch. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, yeah, it's uh, awesome to be here. Uh, very happy to have you, of course, to go super in-depth on Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, so for those who are watching and jumping in, uh, be warned, there will be some spoiler-filled talk in here. If you haven't played through the game, if you haven't uh, checked out everything you want to in the game beforehand, please go do that first and then come back, because there's a lot to dive into, and we're going to be jumping into as much of it as we can. Uh, of course, if you want spoiler-free impressions, we did record an episode with that uh, a little earlier, so you can go check that out. But uh, there's so much that we can jump into with this game. First off, uh, Jason, I just want to say congratulations. We're recording this on the day the game is starting to roll out on launch worldwide. It's already available in some territories as we're speaking, so congratulations to you on the team on that uh it's very exciting for it to finally be out there as a fan of it and i'm sure it must be exciting for you and the team yes it's uh it's super exciting to have it out there we're excited everybody post their photo mode favorites and just enjoy the game so I feel like, and Brian, I think this is true for both you and me, we could probably just spend the next, you know, 40 minutes talking exclusively about photo mode. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I think, uh, just get into that very quickly. Uh, what, what You've created my favorite photo mode in video game history, but also, um, and you, you might know this, you, I think you created one of the most uh, not-so-subtle advertising tools uh, that is perfect for this game, because every time I see pictures of it, um, I want to play it again. And I think for a lot of people who are just sort of like, on the outside looking in of video games in general, like people who aren't just totally head down on this stuff all the time, they're like, wait, what? That's that's a video game? Where do I play? I play it there? Oh, I got to get that. So uh, yeah, that's very, very smart of you guys. Um, it's an absolutely stunning game. Oh, well, cool. You know, it's uh, the photo mode stuff is crazy because we were one of the first, you know, infamous second time was one of the first, at least that I know of modern games that have put like a like a photo mode in. And for that game, it was just like this cool idea to show off all the cool particles and lighting, you know, that that game was, you know, uh, well known for. Um, but it, really, it, was, it wasn't crafted as a personality around it. It was just a cool photo mode. And then over time, over the last few years, you have these games that come out and Spider-Man is my favorite uh, version of this where they like add the flavor of their game to it. So their photo mode is like tied to the like personality of that game right. and getting on like the building tops and doing like little selfies and, you know, doing with this with the phone. That was awesome. It made it unique to Spider-Man. So when we were like, Hey, what are we going to do for photo mode? Uh, you know, 2.0 or whatever the ghost photo mode. We're like, Oh, it's well, it's one, it's gotta be way better than our first one because it's our follow-up one. And two, it's gotta be thematically, you know, connected to, uh, to the game. So we're like, all right, well, motion and wind, like how can we like make it less about a static image? You can do that too, but have it be about the moving frame that, I think is so uh, you know beautiful about our game and kind of spun out from there. I, I did think it was odd that you gave the main character like a selfie stick and and the iPhone ten. No, <laughs> a little I'm weird. I don't know. I, I thought it fit right in. You know? <laughs> His drone that uh, goes along with him the whole adventure. It's a little you know a little out of place, but I thought it was a drone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <They> existed. <laughs> Called birds. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god um yeah no it's it, it's been an incredible thing to play around with and like speaking to what brian said um every time i see more of it it's one of those things where i've been playing every night still and it's like oh no i need to go jump back in in like the middle of the day because like oh that's a great spot i never thought i could take a photo of i've been uh particularly obsessed with going to bamboo strike locations and yeah. trying to get all the great photos i can out of those spots because they're often so you know like perfectly placed at an edge or something um i i was sort of wondering like because obviously this was built more with like the photo mode in mind as you know development went on because photo modes become so much bigger what was world creation influenced at all by the photo mode or like were there any aspects of designing this game that were influenced by it because it is such a more like prevalently used feature these days i guess than back when uh second song came out you know uh a, a, a little secret you know we we always knew we'd have a photo mode and we, we knew that it would be like this ambitious version of, like I said a second ago, better and more thematically connected. But we didn't really work on it until pretty late. So, uh, you know, we were so dedicated to, you know, the stories and crafting the world. So for, when it came to the beauty of the world, um, that out of everything that's in the game, I would have to imagine that that had the most iteration over anything because it's one of the first things you do before you have the whole story articulated and put into the game. You certainly don't have cutscenes. You know, it's like you're laying out terrain and it, that, like, how does the island look? And then it gets into the art direction and the feeling and that, that you know, cutting trees down, growing trees, making procedural tools. Like, the world is the, by far the most uh, iterated on thing. Now, there was a point where we were like, this is how we make our game look good clearings big giant swaths of like golden forests you know uh, that you can see for miles or you know um, using color as like landmarks again the golden forest or you know, red flower fields and then and then uh um you know certainly that sort of made its way into some of our features of, of photo mode but the, the world design stuff um uh, took the lead on on it and photo mode was like okay now that we've created this amazing awesome place how do we utilize the photo mode and like create a cool photo mode that will uh i don't know um take advantage of how you know great the art team did at creating a beautiful world i think um one of my favorite things about this game is the sort of balance that it's constantly striking um <clears throat> between being sort of completely serene and then the music swells up and swords are out and they're slashing against each other um how how hard was it to sort of get that that tone down because I could see, um, you know, I, I think in in lesser hands that could be a very kind of dangerous push and pull. But I feel like you guys totally nailed that, and I I think that that's like some some people when they look at an open world game they want like nonstop jam packed activities, um, and and your team made the decision to sort of pull back and let things breathe every now and then. Um, how did all that come together? Well, you know, for me, it's the first game that I was certainly a visual director on. And so I, um, I, what I, I found, you learn something about yourself with everything you create. And for me, I personally learned that I don't have a natural tendency to like create incredible violence. Um, um, uh, I just, that wasn't, that was, I mean, even though my favorite game is Bloodborne, like that is absolutely my favorite game. Um, I'm so glad you're on this show. You got to come back. <laughs> We're just going to, this is now going to be here. a Bloodborne spoiler cast. Um, oh, do it. <laughs> I'll talk about it anytime. Yes, uh, that's great. But, uh, but no, seriously, like that's my favorite game. But when we were crafting the world, what I navigated towards with, you know, Joanna, who's the environment art lead who just did this amazing uh, blog post recently on PlayStation blog um, was the beauty of it was uh, taking in the, taking, you know, a moment to breathe. And, and then I realized like some of my favorite games that are not Bloodborne, uh, like shadow of the Colossus certainly embrace the idea of like atmosphere and a sense of openness. And um, you know, I, I you know Nate Fox is, is, is uh, resonates. Those kinds of conversations resonated with him as well. So then, then the conversation shifted into, okay, well, we definitely have it. We have a samurai game. So, you know, without saying anything else, as soon as you say samurai game, you know, you're going to be hitting things with a four foot razor blade. So, <laughs> you know, that violence is going to come. So, you know, we certainly work on that stuff, um, a lot. Um, and we want it to be great and gritty and, ugh, you know, like you really want to feel like you have contact when you have contact. Uh, but the other stuff doesn't come as natural. Like you have to actually work on that stuff to balance it out. You really do. And so that means like the ideas about, you know, creating haiku, which was actually Nate's idea, um, you know, really, um, or I believe it was, uh, uh, taking a moment to just allow the beauty to take hold and not, 
what I think is cool about the IQ that I hope people enjoy about that is, is that they're not tied to like progression. Like you're not, you're not like intrinsically forced to go do it. You know, there's a sense of, um, you have to have the wonder and curiosity and desire to do it. It's not like game telling, go do this to reach next level. Um, certainly a lot of that is tied to core progression. Like a lot of open world games have to have to consider that, but it is, it is a worked uh, philosophy to try to get that balance of that contrast. Um, and it, t- it takes years to get right, for sure. I really enjoyed the haiku sections, actually. Um, I, it, it was, it, like you said, it, was, it, it sort of provided like this, this relaxing breather. Um, and I did like that you were able to select different things to essentially collate them into one kind of fresh haiku each time. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I did every single side quest and every single objective in this game, but I, I really enjoyed those. Wow, awesome. Yeah. yeah, those are the the haikus are some of my favorite ones too. The cinematography, you know, yeah. it was just a moment to like, you know, certainly we call them breathing moments. We definitely say that in the studio, but it was kind of a moment where you could just art and geek out a little bit. Like the people who do the cameras, you know, the cinematography, you know, they can place it and get the right motion, and you know, and then the writers have an opportunity to, to like give you give you a couple cool options. It's just the beauty kind of comes through. Uh, which is which in the end has been a very positive thing for the experience. Yeah, the the balance that Brian was speaking to and how you were sort of describing how that all came together, it's I could imagine it's a very like fine line between making sure it's peaceful and calm in certain areas, but it, that it's still engaging for the player because you could always run the risk of it being something that the player doesn't want to engage with. But as Brian yeah. was saying, like fi- finding those haikus feels like this wonderful moment of solace after I have assassinated an entire camp of mongols <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and need to reflect on Jin's life but also just the world it, it, it's this really great balance that I, I i don't think as brian was sort of saying you always get in games but it, it feels so refreshing to have it here mm-hmm. yeah and it's a it's a huge part of our uh philosophy of how we treat treat the game and you know whether it's uh haiku is a great example we could probably keep talking about but um you know the music the style of music how the music comes on um, not having things like combat while you're doing, you know, shrine climbs or anywhere near them so that we can let those be their own experience. And so those are, these are, you know, we, every single one of these features that are not mainline, you know, missions are the conversation is like about how much combat, how much non-combat and what is the purpose and what are the, what's the feeling, uh, for its existence? Like what, what is the emotional goal for, for these features? And these are conversations we have a lot and sometimes, triple times over. We try it. We don't like it. We try something else. Well, and for me, what's really interesting is sort of the place that all of these features and the things you go on have sort of in, I guess, the context of Sucker Punch's past work, because it is, you know, I've been such a huge fan of both the Sly Cooper franchise and Infamous throughout the years. (laughs) And, um, you know, you get increasingly larger, but often more urban and uh, city uh, expanses that you're exploring yeah. in a lot of in both of those franchises to a certain extent here you're out in the wild there are of course uh, settlements and uh, encampments and things like that but there is a, there's a lot of stretches where it can just be the world around you that you're exploring and I, I was sort of wondering on a world design level how do you how do you balance making all of these locations unique to explore as well and interesting, even though, you know, a lot of it can just be more open environment. Like, well, what are the challenges that come with that? Yeah. So um, one of our, uh, uh, our content director, his name's Jeff, he, he talks a lot about content density and what is the correct density. And I really, I'm really thankful that he brought that conversation up to light so much because um, it's such a, you know, uh, thinking about if you're, currently doing something, you're going across the world and you run into something, how much further would you have to ride your horse before you might find the next thing? Or can you see the next thing from where you currently are? Like what, how, how dense is it? And I, I really enjoyed that conversation because it let us think about what's the right philosophy for, for our game. And it, it, you know, certainly, uh, it allows us to, you know, if, if we want to stand in one place, you just completed something and you should be able to generally speaking, look around and find one more thing up on the horizon or see the shrine, you know, shrine on top of the mountain. It influenced our world design a lot because when we first had the game built for the first, you know, I'd say maybe two years, it was a lot of forest. It was a ton of trees and it was cool, but you always were felt like you were in this, like, kind of claustrophobic tunnel, beautiful, but um, really deep forestation, which does a couple things. One, it's, it is very cool, but 
it makes it really hard to know where you are without a compass or a mini map, something telling you, kind of giving you that extra information that your brain is just really needing. Um, so what we did is we started opening up fields. And um, I definitely pulled some Shadow of the Colossus photos out and was like, fields as, as reference, you know, because it just feels so epic when you're going yep. through a massive field. But, but you have, you know, you, the criticism, it could be that it's boring or something like that. And, and you really have to embrace the philosophy that it won't be boring because there's beautiful music. There's five things now that you can see what you want to do next because you're in a field. There's more clearings. And it created a um, great beauty in the game, but also more opportunity to engage with that density. And I, I really, I think that that was one of the conversations that was ongoing throughout the project, but we landed in a really, I, I, I think, a unique spot for at I least mean, our day. When, 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 you, when your team was developing this game, you obviously weren't anticipating a significant portion of the world's population to be stuck indoors for months on end. But <laughs> yeah. I, one, I mean, there were obviously, there were, you know, uh, a lot of sort of like entertainment um, uh, things that have come out during quarantine that didn't really uh, fare as well uh, due to their um, sort of like the, the way they were delivered or their subject material and stuff like that. But this is a game that like, I, I really more than ever appreciated as a guy who's in a two bedroom apartment, really appreciated huge open fields and, and yes. mountains and like, you know, sprawling rivers and seas and stuff like that. Um, but I think one of my favorite things about the big open fields is that there's always something over the horizon or there's like a lone tree um, and you were just sort of naturally drawn towards it. And I, I found that like, that sort of like beautiful use of negative space to be like so powerful um, in terms of it, 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 like it never felt to me like there's nothing ahead of you. This is boring. It always felt to me like this is, this is, this is like a, a sort of triumphant use of minimalism and, and charging towards something uh, to reveal that there's like one lone item in, in the distance was so much more engaging to me than like looking at a mini map that had, a hundred time trials and like all this other stuff. Right. I, like I found myself like uncovering the fog on the entire map, which yeah. is like I was I was like basically riding around in spirals, like in that movie El Topo. Like I was just trying to like <laughs> <laughs> like I was and half the time I was on foot too. Like it was really wonderful game to explore. So I wanted to ask you about that. The um the the sort of the way exploration on unfolds in this game. Uh, is something I really, really love, and I think a, a lot of open world games are going to take note of. Um, following the wind and talking to people and following foxes to locations rather than just, you know, overtly stating to the player, this is where you got to go, or you go to this map and this big thing opens up. Um, yeah. How did all that come together? What was the push and pull on that to sort of find the right way to keep players in the know, but without making, like, overwhelming them with information? Yeah, and I'll talk about kind of our studio kind of struggles, but I also kind of throw in my own, maybe my own personal philosophy too. Uh, so I, I judge games, my favorite games especially, I judge them really harshly by how does it feel if you're you're actually not doing anything on the sticks? Like what if you're just sitting there? Like mm -hmm. just sitting in the world, or you're standing in the world, or you're on your horse in the world. Like is there, is there a, what, what's the feeling? Um, and uh, some of my favorite games by just sitting there, there's like a, things that go through your mind. Like, what are we, what are you anticipating next? Are you, are you stuck on the story or like, where's that next objective? Like you're just, what's going through your mind? Um, because that's when you're not doing anything, that's what you're thinking of next. Like you're just taking in the beauty, looking around and in our game. Um, I hope that translates into that sense of exploration and sense of curiosity. Like if you do stop for a second, you're like, and you're not already on kind of a train of thought, it is one of curiosity. It's one of like, hey, what, what do I want to do next? Oh, there's something over there. There's something over there. Oh, I wonder, it was a bamboo forest over there. I haven't gone to it. Let's go check it out. Um, and I think that the more information you were to have on your screen, compasses, mini maps, it kind of answers those questions before you even have a time to ask the question. It's just mm -hmm. like, oh, the dot's right there. Let's go do the dot. Um, it doesn't matter what the dot is. It's just, there's the thing. Let's go do it. <laughs> and so that, that to me is... Um, is an, is a really important uh, part of what I think the games you know tries to do in the open world and and certainly we did not have the wind when we started on this project at all. In fact, what the wind was, uh, which is it's got this cool story. I'll, I'll say it real quick. Is uh, you know on the first art direction slides on the you know we did like a presentation and it was like one of the first presentations about the way it should look and feel and and everything moves was was one of them. Like it's wind. We're gonna like double, triple, quadruple down on wind. 
And, you know, there's a lot of tech that has to go into that. You got to like get capes moving. You got to get like hair moving. You got to get trees and bushes. And especially for procedurally generated, you know, artistically procedurally generated world, that's, it's really tough. Two years later, something like that, that became true. And you're standing, I'm standing in this world and we had other elements. We were helping augmenting our kind of navigation and get around the world. And I'm just like, holy crap, the wind is amazing. It's like, it actually totally works. At that time, it always like went from east to west or west to east or something. I can't remember. It was just, it was always just directional. And it's just, I was like, man, it's really good. And then we started having conversations like, man, how can we get more stuff off the screen and just stay in this, this like beautiful world more and more? Because it's just, it's really stunning even years ago. And uh, at one point we had this idea like, well, why don't we try the wind? <laughs> that sounds kind of crazy. And uh, Adrian, who's like our long time, worked on slides, been at Sucker Punch for a long time. He tried a little quick prototype with me. We had like 15 people play it where we removed all the UI and just um, said, hey, can you just, 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 just try to follow the wind? Just, I know it sounds crazy, but follow the wind, see if you can get to that hot spring or that onsen. And it worked like, in the first prototype, worked like four, 14 out of the 15 people were able to easily get there. So cool. And, yeah. And I, I was like, oh yeah, we have to do this. Like, <laughs> like there's no question. Like, we, it's like, this is something that is going to be unique to the game. And then, and then my last thing I'll say on them about the wind, cause I can do it all day, but, uh, is that had like thematic ties to the Island and the historical kind of poetic tie-ins to, you know, the you know, Mongols came in, this typhoon sweeps them all out to sea. And, you know, we named the sword, the Sakai storm after that. Um, you know, him being a storm, a metaphorical kind of storm on the island for, for the island, like rooting for the island. And then it was like about nature. And then the animals came along and, you know, it just felt like a, a bunch of, it's like one of these critical pieces that you don't know exists. And then you find it and you're like, oh, let me see if that fits right there. And it does. And then you're like, oh, I think we have a good, I can see the puzzle now. So uh, it was cool. It was a cool journey having, having that come to light. Yeah, it all, it feels so true to the world that the, the team has created in those moments because, you know, I'm, I'm a completionist player. Like if you give me a list of a thousand things to go collect, if you give me, you know, like an infamous, a lot of shards to go collect, I will go collect all of them. But there, there's something that I think does speak so much to this world and, and you wanting to be invested in it, that it is really by pulling everything you know, out of the screen that you're looking at and just letting you look at the world, uh, right. you, you get more familiar with it and you, you start to learn more about, oh yeah, I've taken that path before because that leads to that pillar of honor or there's that cemetery over there as you start to, you know, trek across the land. Yeah. It, it, it really gets you invested in the world in a way that I think just having a list or a neon sign to tell you where to go wouldn't uh, deliver in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's the, that's the goal. So I'm, I'm glad you had that experience. Well, and it, it, it's one of those things, you know, the, the open world, I, I think, speaks so well to what the team really accomplished with this game. And, but one of the things I was curious about was, and I know we talked about this a little bit but uh, pre-release, but since we can sort of, you know, talk to the island as a whole, yeah. but what was the, I guess, the pull, the the back and forth pull of wanting to make sure you stay true to the spirit of this real world location and honor the history and the people there, but also create a world that at the end of the day would be fun to run around or ride a horse around in as a game. Yeah. I mean, it's a great topic and it's kind of been the, the struggle for, uh, and I would say struggle in a creative sense. Like it's the creative challenge, uh, from, from very, from once we actually knew we were making Tsushima, um, and we started doing all this research and, and you learn so much about the island, like the fact that at that time it was likely to be like 95% covered in dense forest, which again, I told you we tried, uh, <laughs> we tried very dense forests and it's just hard to ride a fun horse through tree. It's like, uh, it's like a tree maze, you know, it's just like <laughs> pretty tough. Um, and also it's incredibly hilly. We went there and we're just like, it's just hill after hill after mountain after mountain after mountain. Um, also challenging uh, to create uh, interesting uh, layouts and combat spaces. And so, so we worked with our, you know, team in Japan and we're like, Hey, this is how we were planning on, um, you know, being inspired by the shape of the Island. So it looks very similar to the actual shape, but uh, here's some kind of uh, affordances that we'd like to take for, you know, game reasons, you know, make the game more fun to, uh, to roam around the landscapes and, uh, have layouts that have cool puzzle climbing challenges or, you know, what have you, or interesting missions. And, uh, and they were totally for it, you know, and, and, and they gave us feedback of maybe when we went too far, 
Um, and then they also, they, you know, it was in a fun way. They gave us feedback of when, Hey, you could go further with this. And so that was, it was a, a lot of, um, ultimately we were super inspired by, um, history and what happened. Um, and then the general beauty of greater, uh, the greater nature of Japan as a whole, it's definitely hugely inspiring to us. Um, but we also make in a game and a piece of art and an original story and a lot of things that, uh, have to kind of challenge it, but work in tandem with it. And so it's, it's definitely been a challenge, um, in a good way. And we learned so much. Um, and I will say the last thing I'll say on that is that, um, with, with Joanna on the environment, our team and myself and the concept team, we, we did talk a lot about like realism and, um, you know, like a, a like a, maybe like a painted realism or maybe how can we do it? Like a slightly stylized version of that. And, uh, and, and, you know, this is not, even if you've ever been to Seattle, when we did Infamous, it wasn't really a stone by stone kind of recreation. Roads aren't lined up exactly. It's sort of like if you blur your eyes, you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely Seattle. Like it rains a lot. People drink coffee. There's <laughs> punk rock and grunge music. I don't know. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, we have those things that are there, the space needles there, you know, like the things you would expect, but it's not like the, like, let's put a magnifying glass over it and let's get it like you know, perfectly accurate. And we take that same philosophy here. We want you to feel like that this is plausibly, that's what it could feel like. That's what it, if we could do smell through it, that would, we would try to do that. But it's like the feeling and the music we are going for, uh, as a, as a, as a, as our main target. Smell will actually be unlocked on the PlayStation six. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> that's there just go. First. It's a rumor. We have an IGN today. Um, yeah, three will allow that. <laughs> right. This episode of Podcast Beyond is brought to you by NordVPN, a great way to protect yourself online while also improving your overall experience while enjoying cyberspace. Are you tired of streaming shows, movies, or sporting events being unavailable in your region due to draconian restrictions that are based on completely arbitrary geographical boundaries in physical meat space? Well, switch your virtual location to a place where that's no longer an issue. The same goes for shopping. You can get the best possible deal on subscriptions, flights, hotels, and other goods and services like that from websites that like to play favorites with certain territories and currencies. Meanwhile, encrypted traffic protects your data from hackers, viruses, malware, phishing sites, and other harmful hitchhikers of the information superhighway. Though really, it's more of an information autobahn because there is no speed limit with NordVPN. It is the fastest VPN in the world, so there won't be any buffering or lagging, and it'll stop your ISP from throttling your bandwidth. Isn't that nice? One NordVPN account can be used across six devices, which is great. My wife has been using our account to watch all sorts of awful British reality TV shows that aren't available here, like Argument Island or Half Naked Idiots Fall in Love, and everyone's favorite, The Worst People Just Got Married, let's hear them talk about it. Shows that are so bad, they're blocked in our part of the world for our own good, but luckily, NordVPN allows her to trick the internet into thinking she's in the UK, so she and her awful friends can shriek and howl and cackle at the TV while I'm trying to relax. I've been using my VPN too. You know what I've been using it for? None of your business. Yep, that's right. And thanks to NordVPN, my data is safely encrypted, all bundled up in a weighted security blanket of incomprehensibly complex math problems and nobody can tell what it's doing under there. Data, you do your thing, I'll leave you alone. One month of NordVPN coverage costs less than a cup of coffee. Coffee can't protect you from cyber criminals unless you throw it at them or pour it on their computers and you'll probably get in trouble for doing that. So get NordVPN instead. To get the best possible discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash pobeyond. That link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, that is nordvpn.com slash pobeyond. And now, back to the show. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The, um, the combat in this game is awesome, and that's coming from somebody who, to be completely transparent, 
wasn't crazy about it at first because my immediate reaction was there's no lock on. I was like, what do you mean there's no lock on? Like you can't have you can't have a, a, a sword fighting game without without lock on. And yep. then as as I grew to appreciate uh, the sort of dynamic happenstance of, of dashing between those four stances and fighting different types of enemies, you know, in synchronicity while switching and switching back and forth and then using all my sub moves and everything. I was like, this is one of my favorite combat systems in a video game ever. Uh, but wh- wh- how did that, how did that decision come to not have, have lock on? Was that, was that a debate internally in the studio? Cause that's, to me, that's one of those things that people just expect from a video game. And I found myself not even thinking about it after a few hours in. I, it's definitely a debate, right? Like it's, uh, it was heavily debated and talked about, you know, from all corners of the studio, there was not some like, I mean, because it's a, it is a standard. There is a standard. And anytime you go against the standard, you need to prove it out. And um, I'm glad we tried something different. And, you know, and as a person, Bloodborne's like my favorite game. I like games that allow you to really kind of hone in and focus and, and control that. That sense of control comes, comes with locking, but, and, you know, and certainly as a samurai, a sense of control is a huge part of that fantasy. So uh, yeah, man, we talked about it a ton. I mean, maybe when it comes to combat, I would say it's in the top three conversations we had over the entire course of the project. Wow. But I, you know, have to give some massive shout out to, you know, one of the studio heads, you know, I founded Sucker Punch, Chris Zimmerman. Um, he's, he's behind the core, you know, he designed a lot of the combat and he, he worked on a lot of code for it. And there's another guy named Ted who is an awesome designer. And he like those two brains, man, they work together and they figured out a way to create something that is, first of all, feels like you're hitting the person when you do hit them. Like it's a tandem based animation. So it's not like hitbox based. Like it's like these, this animation links up to this one as my very newbie animation brain. <laughs> um, uh, and it's not just like the slash through thing. Right. And so it feels like you're hitting the person. It feels, uh, and that was a goal is a gritty feeling, but it's also incredibly fast paced at times, you know, as you, as you're aware, you get like five or six people around you. You could be, you could be like, you know, changing stances and planning and when you're going to do the smoke bomb to go around the building and do another jump down from the top, you know, and it's just like, um, it almost is like, uh, the style of it is, is better without the lock on. That's kind of the, the thing that we found over time, especially once you became pro at it and, uh, and locking on actually would slow it down maybe in some ways. And, yeah. uh, that sense of control, what we got out of it instead was things like standoffs and duels. Um, obviously assassinating somebody, having that jump on somebody gives you that too, but that we decided to really push that in those moments or, you know, mythic abilities, which, uh, I think are, you know, usually will help take out people pretty quickly. The mythic abilities are interesting because I um I think I, I I I I'm really glad that this game never really went like supernatural despite yeah. having the word ghost in the title. Um, like, <laughs> it's like you know there's a there's an other there's an alternate version of this game where you guys just went berserk and people are summoning dragons and stuff like that. <laughs> but I appreciate that a, a lot of the crazy stuff that you got away with felt grounded. Even like the, a fire sword is ridiculous, but there's like. Oh, there's there's like sort of like a scientific explanation for right. it. Yeah. Um, and then when you start doing like some really intense stuff uh, that feels deliberately over the top, like dudes get terrified and they start crawling away. Like that's one of my favorite things is watching people just straight up run and run up the mountain <laughs> and disappear and stuff like that. Yeah, it's crazy. Like this is a. I mean, even when we pitched this game, like this was another heavily debated topic. <laughs> Is it going to be fantasy based or not? And obviously, Nate and I felt really strongly, as well as many other people, that we should not make it fantasy based and like high, high fantasy based because um, it, it really uh, those. First of all, there's several of those games out there already, and they do a wonderful job. And you know, I love Neo, I love Sekiro. You know, these games are awesome, um, and they lean on that a little bit more as their unique pillar. You know, and so good it's smart of us not to do that but that's not the reason why we didn't do it the reason we didn't do it is because we were definitely were focusing on a little bit more on a the human story uh certainly wanted the world to feel plausibly real and you know if you like i'll take the example you just threw out there like having people scoot fall on their butt get scared and scoot away man if you could just like pull out a fucking dragon every five minutes <laughs> what, what do you have to do to scare somebody like i, I feel like that would be really <laughs> challenging to overcome like and so you have to be constrained um, so that when we do pull out something that's really incredible or you know, scary or something like that, that it actually has weight to it, you know? And um, I, I, 
one of the things I do love about our game and might be some of my favorite content is actually those mythic missions because mm-hmm. they they build up the idea that people were legends. Like they talk about people and their connection to the island. You know, the lightning one is a great example where, you know, they burn the black sand, the sand's black, which are always like, why are the sands black? I'm like, oh, that's why the sands are black. <laughs> and it just, they build out this, they build out this legend of people that may have come before you, which is kind of cool because you're kind of building your own legend too. And maybe one day people will talk about mythic stories of, you know, the ghost, um, you know, that humans can do maybe slightly crazy and incredible things and you're living an example of that and people will tell tall tales and i think that's cool i love when when Jin would go around to do these stories and people would be like there's ghosts in the woods and he's like no there's not Don't yeah <laughs> yeah the, watching watching the people run away after a battle is one of my favorite things in the game because it's it teeters on like on on like the the comedy you would find in like vintage kung fu movies where somebody would come in kick a bunch of ass and one guy would be like no way and run away and the thing i did every single time was i would let him run like maybe like 150 feet pull out my arrow it's cruel man i know you you put it there you know you guys put it there i set you up i set you up If you if you give Brian the high ground, he will let them run as far as he wants to. That's um, true. But, yeah, what I do love going sort of back to the the mythic tales and you, you know maybe people one day telling the story of the ghost. I, I'm always sort of a sucker for uh, stories that are about storytelling to a certain extent because I do think you get so much of the human nature that we all deal with on a day to day basis of like why we tell stories and everything. And I I love that that permeates so much of this game and not just in the mythic quest but on the on the quest structure as a whole in this game i think is really unique but it works really well because as brian was saying earlier you can go you know to a house and someone's saying oh there are ghosts nearby please help me or someone one of my favorite stories early on one of the side missions i found was um a woman sends you to get food from the bandit that stole it from her and then you bring the food back and she's like oh thanks i finally have food now and you're like wait a second that wasn't yours to begin with i just killed all those guys because of oh, you yeah. like there's yeah. there is this <laughs> Um, stark sadness to a lot of the stories that I, I think really works in this game. And I, I was just curious on like a, a tonal storytelling level, because there are moments of lev- levity, you know, like everything with Kenji, I think is so great. But how do you, you know, balance, I think this is a land and a group of people who are under siege. They're under attack by this oppressive force, but yeah. at the same time, they are living their lives. There's this humanity going on the island. How, what are some of the struggles that come up in trying to tell those stories? Yeah. Well, first of all, when you started telling me which story you were, I was like racking my brain. I was like, which one is it? <laughs> There's so many. So There's yeah. a lot. I, I know. It's crazy. And I, I'm, I'm going to play through a bunch probably that I haven't played through in a long time when I play retail. But, um, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a balance because you don't want it to be this like, we, we, we did not want our game to be this like heavy thing that was constantly hitting you over the head with it. Um, that was just not what we, we wanted for this uh, particular um game and i don't think anybody really goes for that particularly i think they're always an end goal but um but and it's hard though because it's invasion and you want to see desperation and you want to see like these people like have struggles um and and frankly you know we want to you know it's not always just like dude go kill things and so you do want to hear you know um people having maybe their kids or this or that like or their parents like i don't know you just want to hear like something that sounds like these people are struggling a little bit but you know, I, the, when it comes to the writing and those stories, those most of those stories do, most of them do exist to try and reflect that the world has been in an invaded, an invaded place. And you know, for people that are like these allies that you meet and you engage with, those those will get a little bit more in depth unraveling of their story. And for these little small one-off encounters, it's just to say, look, even even the the you know this pet you know peasant class is affected greatly by this, and hopefully you feel. A sense of remorse for them or sadness for them and maybe a sense of duty that, that that's why you're doing this stuff but um as for the tone of it i i genuinely like a somber tone in general i think somber is is not dark somber is not grotesque somber is it's just like as there's like a a light sadness to things and i felt like that light sadness in a world that is so incredibly beautiful is is kind of a nice you know, a balance. And I think we, we, we look at it, you know, that way and to some extent. Yeah. It's a really good way of putting it now that, now that you say that it's, it makes perfect sense because I, it, there's, you have all these incredible, like 
you know, there's foxes and there's, you know, uh, like rainstorms and beautiful trees and yellow leaves. But then you go do these side quests and you're like, oh, wow, that was your family died and you couldn't save them. And you're like, damn, that that hit me hard. Like that one particularly, there was that one side quest where like, I know, I know it's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That one yeah, hit me hard. That one's that one's that one's that one's hard. And uh, you know, there are you know, that one there were people on on the team who, you know, they created that one. And then like, you know, as we get through like the polish phase, like that one somebody went through and added a bunch of extra work to that one for, you know, animation and like kneeling down and you know, I and I, you know, went from liking that mission to really like connecting with it more. And this is a small thing, right? Like this is not like a two hour long, you know, big, big mission. It's very straightforward and simple. It's meant to just reflect the tone of the world a little bit. Um, and that one, that one I think was one of the ones that even though it's a small moment in your entire playthrough, I think improved a lot over the last uh, course of the project. I'm glad it exists. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I don't even know if I necessarily have a question about it, but I'm just so curious to hear more about the, the construction of the, um, the side quest when it comes to, or the side tales when it comes to those, um, the supporting cast that you get. Cause I do, I do think one of my favorite things, you know, throughout Sucker Punch's history has been that there is of course, usually a pretty great main character, but also this really great supporting cast as well. And, you know, going back to Sly and Infamous and now with Ghost, I loved finding out more about Yuna and Lady Masako uh, and just everyone at the pace that you want to in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and that balance, I, I guess my question is because I do think that's some of my favorite storytelling in the games in the game comes from those quest lines. How do you balance, you know, having this stuff be optional, I guess, if you, if a player just wants to go through the main story, but also encourage people to want to keep going back and revisit these stories and these characters? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. You know, we, um, from I, I, as long as I can remember, I think, I think earliest pitches of the game, we talked about how we really wanted to create sort of this um, anthology of short stories. Um, you know, these little, little side branches off the main trunk, you know, that you could, you're going to, you're going to get invited to them on the main trunk, the main story. You're going to get invited to them and maybe even once or twice uh, and engage with them. But it's up to you. Hopefully, it's engaging enough. Or if that story, you know, relates to you, it's up to you to kind of go and finish out the rest of that branch. And we do a lot of stuff like we try to reward you for doing these things. But I find that those things are um, they're, they're they're good, and I'm super glad we reward you in different ways for playing these. But I find that the beauty of those mission, uh, the those ally missions, if you will, um, Masako, Norio, you know, characters, is that they're just they're they're far more developed in terms of like their arc and like what they need out of the world and their stories are interesting and um and they all have a different perspective on you and life and you know um in and what i what i think is kind of cool about creating a world like this is that you have to be okay with having content that exists that you're not forced to play um and you have to embrace that you have to because that that is what makes it joyful when you go on your own ambition to go do it. It's not that you were told to go do it. It was in the golden path. And, and there were versions of the game earlier that a lot of these characters' stories were more interconnected to the golden path. But, you know, through playtesting and feedback and our own kind of iteration process, um, we ended up where they are, which I think is the right spot, which is you introduce them. And then um, over your own curiosity, we can push them, uh, uh, push, you can go enjoy them and your own curiosity. And there's some of them are five or six missions long. And I think that's the right model, but it, you know, it takes some iteration to get to that, that, that spot for us. Yeah. Even having, you know, late in the game, uh, the, I think it's two missions for Yuriko that pop up, uh, after you've revisited home, just yeah. was such a, such a gut punch, uh, yeah. you know, in the midst of as, Jin's story is starting to come full circle and then to have this exploration both more into him but then also into her life uh it, it's it, it was like as you were saying I, it felt so much more rewarding because i sought out that story within this yeah. world yeah i think that that's a it's not an easy philosophy to hold you know um as a director or as a contributor or a designer or artist because it, it means that somebody is gonna a bunch of people are not gonna play your mission a bunch of people are not gonna see your artwork and, and it's really hard to like talk about that because I want everyone to, who worked on this game at Sucker Punch to just like be super proud of it and love every moment that they contributed to. But that's one where it's just like, 
yeah, but your thing is optional. And that can sound really bad, but it, it, in these cases, it is for the, for the, a greater feeling that the people that will engage with it will probably tear up or will probably love, or it'll be maybe even their f- favorite mission in the game, maybe even not the golden path. Like it might be their favorite moment in the game. And that's because you, you let them engage it at their own will. Um, and that's a, that's a hard philosophy to, to, to kind of stomach. But I think it's I think it's a really healthy one for the type of game that Ghost is. Yeah, yeah totally. it, it it absolutely plays into. I, I think my favorite thing about the game is that, um, like, it, me th- in the act of playing the game sort of has to meet the game halfway, and it presents all of these options. But I have to go explore, and and I feel encouraged and want to explore. And you know, yeah. some of my favorite times playing have just been putting a dot on the map and letting the wind guide cool. me a thousand kilometers. And if I if something <laughs> stops me, I stop. If it doesn't, I just keep going until something else interests me. Awesome. It, it's a calming experience, which I don't often say I think about games at the moment. <laughs> right, right. That's exactly how I played too. I would just put a marker somewhere completely random, very far from me, and just go there and see what I ran into along the way, what, along the way, what stories popped up, what, which new characters I would meet that would show me points of interest and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that loop was really smart in terms of having sort of like random gangs of bad guys uh, patrolling the land and you'd run into them and they'd have somebody kidnapped and you'd rescue that person and that person would tell you another place to go. It felt yeah. like you were constantly pulling on these little threads. Um, and I, I loved that so much. Was did that, did that all take a while to come together? Like outside of the wind, the sort of the way the, these, the optional stuff and the sort of like randomized character, you know, excursions and stuff all interconnect. How, how was it bringing all that stuff together to create the flow that you guys ended up with? Uh, yeah, I, 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 you, you both sound like you played it exactly the way that I would recommend somebody to play it, which is like, Hey, you know, every now and then just throw a point down and go that direction and see, see what you find. And, uh, and if you don't find something great, then go do your golden path story. That's awesome. But try it. And because it's, um, and this is true for even when we were doing playtesting that we did find that that was some of the ways that people would enjoy the game the most, which is awesome. Um, what you're talking about that, like the ecosystem and balance of people who tell you where stuff is and, um, how many patrols are there, that stuff, I'll tell you, we tweaked that probably maybe until weeks before gold. I think wow. I, I can't tell you exactly <laughs> the number because I don't know off the top of my head, but it's very late. We tweak those numbers because, um, because the sense of owning the curiosity and like not having everything told to you was so important um, to the global feeling of enjoying just like exploring throughout the world. And as soon as you're told where too much stuff is or um, too many things are on your map, it becomes a different problem. Like you're kind of, you either, you either go into, let's just go through the checklist, which is fine. I think if you found them on your own, um, but can be exhausting for some people because they're like, oh God, there's just a ton of stuff to do. Or um, it's kind of a turn off because you already know what it is and you don't think there's anything else over there, but there actually might be if you were if you actually went and looked. So we actually ramped uh, down the people that the amount of people that would tell you where things were quite a bit. Um, it used to be a far more um, part of the emergent process is that every, almost everybody who would talk to would tell you where something is and it would put a thing on your map. And um, we found that to be super smart system, and I'm so glad that we have it. But we, <laughs> we put it in a very specific way and a very specific amount of things on the map total that it would ever tell you about, so that you still had your cool moment of like, I don't see anything over here on the side of the map. I'm going to head that way and find some things along the way. And that balance, it's really, it's really tricky because again, it goes up to that thing I was just talking about earlier, that philosophy of being okay with things being skipped, and mm-hmm. uh, that that. If you don't want it to be so much that you don't have any information, that would be bad too, right? So it 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 is it takes some time to to work out, but uh, the team you know did that in a you know a healthy fun fun way. So. Well, I, th- I think even when you like clear a Mongol camp and the yeah. fog clears up a little bit, you still get a question mark. It's not even like here's a hotel or something like that. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> and it sort of yeah. it, it to me it felt um it felt like sort sort of natural to the universe that you guys were setting your game in. Because this is, this is like a long time ago. There was, there's no Yelp. There's no Google Maps. There's no like, <laughs> so like, I, it seemed natural that you'd find a random person on the street and they'd be like, "Oh, thank you so much. There's this awesome restaurant across right. town. You should go check it out." Right. Um, so I really dug that. Yeah. Um, I I played a ton of the game in Kurosawa mode. 
Oh, cool. And that was that was really that was really difficult for me because you you made such a beautiful game, such a beautiful <laughs> game. And I think it's I, I think it's 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 beautiful in a different way in Kurosawa mode. Um, but there was just something so special about about like heading into a conflict or a story beat or coming into a new environment or it's all black and white and there's that film green crackling. And uh, I, I read that you guys even did some stuff with the music to make it feel almost like it was coming through old speakers or something like that. Yeah. Um, how, 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 how did you, how did you develop that? I, I, I know that's like, obviously it's something that your, your studio is really proud of, especially since you got endorsement from the family. Um, yeah. It was a, that was a, that was a, I, I probably will put that in my top list of my entire career is like being a part <laughs> of that process because I mean, it's just, it's just why it's just kind of a wild thing that you don't go into making video games because you expect to go through that process one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is probably why it's cool is, is that it's, it's different, you know, but the, we knew that we want to do a black and white mode. I mean, I think I, I don't, I don't remember when we first talked about it, but it was definitely really early. We do a black and white mode, but, um, again, it got kind of pushed towards the end of the project. And then once things started to, you know, you could sit in the world and you could be like, Oh my God, this is really stunning. It's really beautiful. I feel, I do feel like I'm, there's moments of this. I feel like a samurai movie, it's coming, it's coming together. And then we're like, okay, well, we, we should definitely have that mode. Let's start planning for it. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I got a version of it in that was a very early version of it with, uh, some of the lighting team. And, um, and you're like, what do we call this thing? And you go like, oh, samurai cinema or classic <laughs> black and white or traditional blah, blah, blah. Like just things, you know, cool, like cool names. And I don't remember who's, I mean, it was Brian studio. Ed. I don't remember. Somebody was like, why don't we see if we can call it Kurosawa mode? And I thought that was, you know, brilliant. And I was like, yes, can we, can we do that? Or can we, like, what, what, like, what's that process? So I reached out to uh, one of the people that I think he deserves a special shout out. But his name is uh, Ryuhei Katami. He's like our Japanese producer. He's like, he helped us since the very, almost since the very beginning. And he helped coordinate all of our feedback through Japan. And I said, hey, Ryuhei, who's now a dear friend of mine. I was like, is this possible? Could you look this up? And he and the, uh, our Japanese team reached out to their to their estate, the Kurosawa estate, and um, worked out, um, you know, they wanted to see a video. So I put together a video and then I, I redid it like three times because it wasn't good enough. <laughs> and it would take a long time to make a video, but I was like, oh, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Right. Uh, and even Brian and our, our lead you know, rendering guy, Jasmine, he was just like, it's not good enough. I'm like, damn. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I kind of redid it a couple of times. And then eventually um, I was like, okay, this is, this is it. I, I looked at, so many movies and like measured the black and white, you know, in our game, you know, as you both played it, it's daytime, nighttime, there's, there's indoors, there's weather, there's rain, there's fog. And so like, you have to look at movies that have all of these things, you know, you can't just be like, here's a movie, here's a sample. Let's copy the black. Right. And the white. No, man. Like you got to look at all these because they exist in our game and it's a filter that would be going over all of these. And so, uh, I finally got to the point where I was, I had good black levels and good white levels, had some cool noise and we sent them a video and, and, uh, it took a little bit of time, you know, back and forth, but they eventually were like, yeah, this is cool. And we reached an agreement and they were cool with it. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a cool process. And then it showed up as Kurosawa mode and our team was like, oh shit, it's called Kurosawa mode. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it, was, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, cool process. So. It's, yeah. That's, no, that's a dream come true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty it's, wild. It's so awesome on a historical level because obviously, you, you know, seeing the game through its, uh, you know, from the reveal trailer to now, there's clearly a, a love and so much homage to the cinema and the storytelling that's come in the genre before it. And so right. to have that encapsulated as a mode that you can jump into right from the start is such a great, uh, I think, like touchstone full, full circle thing as a fan of the genre as well. Yeah. yeah. Also, I mean, the what what you guys did with the audio. Uh, from, oh, yeah. From, from like a a gigantic Wu-Tang fan. <laughs> like it's, it, it sounded like, like RZA sampling VHS tapes of sword slashes. And like, there were moments where I was playing that game and I was like, I, I expect like Method Man to start rapping right now. Like it was, yeah. Yeah. Which I don't know if anyone was intending, but that, that sort of got me on a very, on a very like neural level. I was like, Oh my God, like this is, yeah. this is quietly the best Wu-Tang game ever made. Since <laughs> the, the the fighting game, the game we put that as a quote somewhere. I feel like, like, like for the back of the box, right? That's the quote. That's the quote. We need. But our, our um, 
our audio director, Brad, he, that's all him. He was like, Oh, I have an idea. And that guy's a wizard. So that usually meant something cool. And he, he was like, we have this special thing that we developed internally at Sony that replicates old processes from like, you know, 50, 60, something like that radios and TVs and, and, uh, and, and he put, he, he, he kind of took that, filtered it and figured out the right. Cause he was like, if you do it too much over, you know, we wanted people to play a lengthy amount of times and if they wanted to the Kurosawa mode, he was like, if you do it too much and it becomes incredibly fatiguing, um, like, you know, it's not watching a movie for an hour. It's like possibly 30 hours, you know? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you got a nice balance between that and something that you can, you know, uh, listen to over and over again. Yeah. Which is I, I legit played Kurosawa mode for probably 25, 30 hours. And I think yeah. I, I put like maybe 50, 60 into the game. So wow, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. A long, yeah. a long time with that mode. And to me, it was surreal to play an open world game almost entirely in black and white. Like that was just, I've never done anything like that before. And yeah, me either. I, yeah, it, was, it was such a cool, it was such a cool experience. One of the challenges with it, I would add, is that like, since it's black and white, um, there's, there's missions that use color as guiding. And mm -hmm. so some there are there are a few missions uh, that it really struggles with, but for yeah. the most part, we redesigned icons on the map so that it would work with it. So you're not just looking at two icons one one's this color, one's that color. Um, we just changed the icon a little bit, but um, but yeah, it's 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 generally speaking, you can play through most of the game with it, which is which is uh, crazy. Yeah, I think there was one mission where they were like, find the purple flowers, and I was like, oh, this yeah, is your problem. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I was I was switched it right back on, so that was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it leads to so many great um, visual moments. And as you were saying, I know we're running short on time, so I, uh, I don't want to belabor the point too much. But I, I genuinely really loved, and as you were pointing to earlier, the the soundtrack and the way both the game uses it, and it comes in from quiet to loud, but also how the score changes both from uh, the combat setting to the open world setting. You know. Uh, moments, I would say, not settings, but uh, th that juxtaposition, as well as uh, even on the the side, the remixes that were coming out, sort of in the lead up to the game's launch. There's there's cool. so much great musicality and artistry there that I think really elevates so much of what's going on there on a visual level too. It, it works so well in tandem. You know, uh, there is no single uh, discipline that contributes more to the game than music. Like, uh, you know, in this case, we have two composers and a team of people that obviously help implement it. But like their artistry is like, like just levels things up so much, like a scene without music and a scene with music. There's a, a world of difference. And, and generally speaking, I know I'm, it's not one contributor. There's a quite a few people that make it make it happen, processing and implementation. But it's insane what music can do. Uh, and for this game, it's it's like it's one of the best parts of the game. I think is the, the, the artistry behind the music and the soulfulness in it is, is, is really, I listen to it a lot. And I love it. And then we got like Toki monster and glitch mob and like, <laughs> which is just ridiculously cool. So. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's an awesome combination. I do think as you were saying it, it elevates so many already great moments, but really just yeah. uh, drills home, like the emotional undercurrent of everything that's going on in the game. Yeah. Um, uh, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. I think we could, uh, Brian and I could keep talking. There's so much we love and uh, really enjoyed about the experience and are continuing to enjoy as we cool. just spend more time in this world. So, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. that was super fun. And thank thank you to your studio for yeah. I mean, bookending this entire console generation with like <laughs> my favorite games. I, I don't know if that was ever the plan, but the way that worked out <laughs> is to have one near the beginning and one near the end. And they're both phenomenal. Um, is super, super cool. So yeah, best of luck and, uh, and everything to everyone at the studio and, and yeah, congrats on this fantastic new game. Thank you. Thank you both of you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you both enjoyed it and, uh, our, our team is, is stoked. So, uh, thank you. And, uh, maybe we'll talk in the future. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about the game once it's in uh, everyone's hands and everyone starts uh, diving deep into such a beautiful, fun world to explore. So thank you again, Jason. Uh, congratulations to you and the whole team. Uh, thank you to everyone watching and listening at home. We hope you're safe. We hope you're well. And as always, beyond. 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 Party on, dude. Summer is here, and with it, the biggest show in entertainment, Comic-Con. And this year, it's on IGN. Starting July 22nd, IGN is giving you a front row seat to the geekiest celebrity panels. Oh, I love this show. <laughs> the coolest merch. 
the latest trailers, and the biggest reveals from across the world of movies, TV, and comics. Catch all five days of Comic-Con at home on IGN and IGN One on Samsung TV+. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of Go Kid Go and a mom to two kids. Join my family on the story train with Calm Conductor Birdie each night as we travel through the magic rainbow tunnel to everywhere and anywhere to find the best bedtime stories. Search for Story Train on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.